1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be doing a Toolbox Talk episode that's actually an implied request by a lot of listeners. Nobody said, hey, talk to us about foreign policy theory. But a lot of people have asked us, why do we look at the world a certain way? And a lot of people challenge us on how we present different kind of constraints that different states and different leaders face so a lot of people challenge us and say, well, aren't Trump and Kim Jong-un's personalities really revel- relevant? Isn't Putin's personality really relevant in shaping foreign policy? And we tend to say probably not. And this is based on uh, a lot of historical analysis by people way smarter than we are with a foreign policy framework called realism. And we're going to be talking about that today.
2: And this will be a two-part uh, or a series. I don't know oh, if- yes. Yes. I don't know if you can call two episodes a series, but we're going to have a second episode where after we dig into some of the detail about what realism is on this show, on this episode, we're going to have Zach Twomley who has a podcast called When Diplomacy Fails and he's like 200 episodes in. And as the name implies, he talks about different wars throughout history, oftentimes in great detail. 10 episode series on wars that you haven't heard of before so but are very important yeah exactly i I mean just because you haven't heard of the second english dutch war doesn't mean that it didn't shape the course of of europe which is important and after we lay out some of these ideas we'll be talking with zach on the next show about how to apply some of them to specific wars housekeeping before we dig into it hmm We are on the social medias if you haven't followed us already. We are on Twitter and Facebook at ReconsiderPod. Feel free to tweet at us with episode suggestions or ideas or comments or feedback. We have responded in the past with some new shows. Uh, Additionally, we have a new section on our website, ReconsiderMedia.com, where you can send in suggestions there as well. It's at the bottom of the landing page.
1: We make it easier than ever. No excuses for not doing it. We would also love a review. So on your favorite podcatcher, leave us an honest review. It helps us get out to more people so we can spread the message And more people can learn what you've been enjoying learning. And if you've really been enjoying what you've been learning, we, of course, have a Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash reconsider, where you can join us in the Dan Carlin model of just a buck a show to help us keep this bad boy going far into the future. If you're interested in getting involved more deeply, there's a lot of great perks available from books that... I've written to uh, even getting involved in the Reconsider cabinet. So go check it out and browse uh, to find the patronage level that is right for you. Now, the last thing I want to say about realism or about foreign policy theory in general before we dive into the details of what is realism is you you might hear realism and think, well, that's a bit of a pretentious name, realism. Everyone else must be unrealism, right? And you're going to hear some words that you are familiar with Uh, for example, realism or liberalism, that actually in foreign policy theory mean things that are very different from what you'd normally hear. So don't bring any baggage about the names with them. Like all things academia, it's got its own jargon, and we're going to use as little of it as possible, but the names of the theories are important.
2: So realism is a, a school of thought that tries to explain how the world works or why it works in certain ways in this sense it is not prescriptive and all that means is realism does not say you should do x because x is good it says x causes y because of some event unlike some schools of thought that suggest that you should pursue, pursue one policy or another realism is just trying to explain why
1: things work a certain way they they do Realism is probably the dominant school of thought in the foreign policy wonk world, and specifically what it was originally designed to do, where it was designed after World War II, was to explain why do states go to war? There must be some structural reasons why it was essentially trying to use the same kind of rigor that is used for economics or other social behavioral theory to explain what are the forces about the international order that cause states to want to go to war versus states that will probably never go to war. For example, Canada and the United States probably not going to war anytime soon. And there are good reasons why if it's correct it's actually a very useful framework to understand what's happening and can provide a lot of deeper insights about what forces are shaping state's actions or at the very least provide a different perspective with which to challenge your current interpretation of what's going on in the world and why. So what are the core ideas of realism? Yeah. So there, there's a lot of different types of realism and we'll get
2: into some of that, but there's a couple of core ideas that are shared by all of them. One is that power relations, so how much power one state has versus another, these relative power relations between states influence the way they act, uh, both with one another and within the international system. However, you must analyze not only the power they have, but the constraints they face in exercising that power, but, well, how they acquire that power and how they exercise it. So in this framework, states are usually the central actors in international politics, especially in the modern world. When we talk about countries, we're talking about nationalities, we're talking about nation states. Sometimes that's not true. You look at non-state actors, and that plays a greater role in the Middle East. But some of the, the idea of relative power
1: relations still applies. One of the core assumptions behind realism is that the international system is anarchic. That is, nobody can enforce rules over other states. And so, for example, if we think of most, within most countries, there's police forces. They enforce the law. If you break the law, there's a certain probability that you're going to get arrested. And this allows the state to not be in a state of anarchy. But in the international system, even though there are laws, there's no police force that has the power and authority to keep other states in line. And so what that means is ultimately, at the end of the day, states are in anarchy, and they behave as if they are in anarchy, and they can ultimately only depend on themselves for their security and prosperity. There is some debate within the world of realism of the degree to which anarchy prevails totally or only partially in the international order. But this assumption is one of the things that sets it apart from other foreign policy approaches, for example, liberalism.
2: Another core tenet is that states tend to follow their interests. So there's there's some debate within the world of realism how leaders of states interpret those interests and whether or not those perceptions influence the final outcome being observed, which is how that state acts, but essentially the idea that the behavior that we end up witnessing are states attempting to
1: achieve some sort of interests or imperatives. If you believe that this is true, what it means is that the rhetoric you hear from leaders that is often very moral, very high, you know, highfalutin and v- Typically not about the state's self-interest, right? We don't say, oh, we're going to Iraq because we have this self-interest to do blah. It's like, oh, for freedom and stuff like that. And you hear that all the time when states initiate conflict on each other or attempt to use uh, threats of conflict to control each other. But ultimately, they're pursuing their self-interest within this anarchic system. What that also means is that when states, powerful states, create institutions such as the United Nations or the WTO, what they're doing is they're actually trying to create institutions that better further their own self-interest. And what they will do is they will attempt to use those institutions to change the behaviors of other states without having to explicitly threaten them. Um, Free trade and other things are carrots that are used to try to control other states to be, to act within the interest of the state that's providing the carrots or creating the institutions but at the end of the day states are fundamentally insecure people could do bad things to them because there's no police force protecting you so the key foreign policy aim at the end of the day for a state is to accumulate power in order to more effectively pursue their interests the base of which is not getting blown out of you know existence these are called security imperatives they States, based on their position in the world, have different imperatives that are all based around preserving their security. The other really interesting thing about this is that it means that as states develop the ability to project their power and better protect their interests, they develop a greater sphere of security concerns that stretches over more territory. And this actually causes them to seek even greater power to influence those events favorably. And this ultimately means that these states' attempts to expand their power, to pursue their self-interests, run up against the interests of other states and run up against their attempts to secure themselves by developing power. And so if you look back on our episode on North Korea, our episodes on Russia, you're going to see us implicitly talking about this framework of mutual insecurity and clashes of security imperatives and clashes of behavior that each state takes to improve its security. At the end of the day, realists say this is the basis for why there is conflict between states.
2: Right. Although different kinds of realists will draw different conclusions based on pursuit of security interests and the constraints that they face and again we'll come to that in a little bit now as we mentioned this this core concept is the idea of anarchy and if you live in a if you live in a country there you know really isn't anarchy usually in most places there certainly isn't in the u.s because if you do something wrong your neighbor isn't going to come at you with a gun and usually seek retaliation usually The violence that is imposed as punishment for certain types of actions is carried out by the state, by the sovereign. Now, in the international system, as Eric mentioned, there is no supra-sovereign. After World War II, the UN was created with the idea that this could be a venue in which different states could work together, but ultimately there's really no enforcement mechanism at the UN there are peacekeepers, and they get deployed here and there, but usually they're not particularly effective. And you know, the predecessor of the UN, the League of Nations, essentially failed when Japan became very aggressive in the 1930s, and everyone said, okay, Japan, you can't do this. And they said, all right, what are you going to do? And no one did anything because each country didn't feel that they were being threatened enough to actually put their own people at stake. Now, you can do a thought exercise to sort of think about why this concept of anarchy is so important, right? Now, if you're a state or if you're just a person and there is no sovereign and you know that someone else can come and commit some sort of violence against you and there will be no punishment, then all of a sudden it sort of starts to make sense for you to try to make yourself more powerful, either to protect yourself if you are attacked or to deter that attack in the first place. So maybe you start hoarding guns and maybe, you know, your neighbor sees you start hoarding guns. You start building up a greater, greater cache of guns and sort of the situation begins to look a little bit more intense. Now, this this idea of anarchy has been sketched by different philosophers. Thomas Hobbes, who was a 17th century British philosopher talks about anarchy in, in a really critical way. He describes it in like very high fluid, and eloquent terms and says, you know, it's the state of nature, but basically what he's talking about is anarchy, a state in which there, there is no hierarchy. There is no structure. And if you look at places in the world that are like this today, and there aren't a ton of them, but one is Papua New Guinea and there's, there is a state, but it's really effectively impotent in enforcing its rules. So you still have like a lot of tribal raids where one tribe or one small town will go to another and kill like five people and then they'll retaliate and this will go back and forth for generations and there's no way to stop it. So you can kind of map this individual perception of anarchy onto the international system.
1: And so one of the key assumptions in realism is that the tribe, that is the central organizing body of the international system is the state and the psychological principle underlying this is in-group out-group theory so in our neighborly example your family is your in-group and neighborly families are out-groups that could be threatening when you are in a tribe and this is a evolutionary psychology thing you you join this tribe for safety they're typically clan members they have some genetic likelihood or you know, likeness to you and that's your in-group and other tribes are the out-group Realism assumes that when people are in states, those states become the in group. And you agree this is our group where Americans and other people are other people and they're fundamentally threatening to us. Realism subscribes very much to this in-group, out-group theory and thereby believes that some idea of perpetual world peace where everyone gets along and everyone's just going to be brothers in a global stage is actually impossible or at least very, very unlikely. So it thinks that this state of tension between states is going to be constant. Now, this starts to change when one state becomes really, really super powerful in relation to other states. Remember, we talked about there's no police force. But what if one state is so powerful that it could be the police force? And why would it be the police force? Well, because its security interests have become so broad from its power that it actually wants to prevent other wars elsewhere because it doesn't want other countries taking over other countries and getting powerful. When this occurs, you have a state that becomes the hegemon or the leviathan, so it acts like that supranational state, and it can actually preserve the peace to a relative extent for a limited amount of time, as long as it remains preponderant. One of the things that happened after World War II, and in particular after the end of the Cold War, is that after World War II, you had two hegemons that preserved peace in their spheres of influence. So you didn't have Europeans, you know, you didn't have NATO members going to war with each other. You didn't have Warsaw Pact members going to war with each other. And then after the Soviet Union fell, the United States became this hegemon and was able to maintain a certain level of peace because it had the interest and it had the power.
2: Yeah, and you hear these phrases sometimes called like the Pax Americana. And before that it was the Pax Britannica and Pax Romana. And all of the, this expression applied to different nations throughout history is this idea that a country has become so globally powerful or, or, you know, within a circumscribed region of the world, like with the Roman empire, that it's effectively able to decrease the rate and the scale of warfare. It doesn't mean war doesn't happen, right? Because in 1991, fall of the Soviet Union. There's still the Iraq War. There's still the the dissolution of of Yugoslavia later in the 90s. But we didn't have any major wars that we saw in sort of the mid and uh, mid of the 20th century, middle of the 20th century, and some of the decades that followed. Eric, you mentioned this in-group, out-group theory. And I think that that is pretty important to realism in a way that's not necessarily obvious. Because a lot of people think, Realism, real politic, and we'll be talking—they they think about analyzing resources and power and military strength and economic capability, and we'll talk a lot about that too. But a fundamental aspect of realism is who the in-group is, right? I mean, you talked about family and then state and so on and so forth, but that means you can't really approach analysis, between, analysis of power between entities without understanding the identity— of the states that are potentially going to go into conflict. So in this sense, identity actually begins to matter a lot. I mean, if you identify with an, as an American, you can be almost any race, right? But there have been times in history where your identity is very circumscribed to an ethnicity or a nationality that has hundreds of years of history. So that adds a certain qualitative aspect to any sort of realist analysis, I think.
1: Indeed, because you never really know what identities people feel most strongly about, right? Most Americans feel like they're sort of Americans first. And we tend to think, oh, it's other parts of the world where people identify first with their religion and fight over that or identify with their ethnicity and fight over that. And it could happen here maybe, however— the core idea is that you don't really know when someone's ethnicity their ethnic identity or the religious identity is going to become stronger for them than their state identity until it actually happens uh, and so this is possibly one of the limitations of realism is that it tends not to see you know ethnic conflict within a single nation coming until it already occurs and Because people have different identities at the same time that are not just their nation state, um, it actually means that the waters get muddied a little bit. However, a realist would say, yes, we don't model it as well as it could be modeled, but the principles are the same. This is still a realist world that we're dealing with.
2: So we're talking about realism as one form of international relations theory. But
1: what else is there? The most popular opposition to realism came about after the Second World War, and in particular after the Cold War, and it's called liberalism. And it's still pretty popular these days. And what it says is basically, hey, realists, the world is not just a zero-sum game where you're playing over, where every, you know every time one state takes an action to further its self-interest, it must be fighting against the... ...self-interest of other states. States can work together to further both of their self-interests at the same time. And so these international structures and these international laws and forms of cooperation come about... ...is that they're good for everyone. And once they get developed, once these structures get developed, because they're good for everyone... ...there's an incentive for states to not want to disrupt uh, these cooperations or structures because they'll lose the benefits and they say in these kinds of environments most state behavior they say in these kinds of environments most state behavior is not actually driven by military power and not dependent primarily on just increasing security you know damn everything else and so they say realism doesn't explain the whole picture and there's a few sort of subcategories of realism that are pretty popular uh, that get into a little more nuance. So one of them is democratic peace theory. And it essentially says this is ideology-based. Democracies don't go to war with each other. You know, we understand that democracy is good and that everyone has human value. Everyone is equal. And we're not going to go to war with other countries that believe that, that treat their people the right way and that respect other nations the way that we would. One of them is commercial peace theory. And so when there's lots of trade, states don't want to fight because they'll lose that trade. It will be bad for them. And the third one is institutional peace theory. And it says when state structures create mutual benefit, so think perhaps the World Trade Organization, and absolute gains for everyone, states won't want to upset them. And so they won't go to war or they won't get into conflict because if that happens, these beneficial structures get messed up for them. And also, not only will they not mess with them, but they will also defend these structures and actually put themselves out there to do it, which is not the same as simply looking out for their own security interest.
2: So in a nutshell, liberalism says liberal democracies go to war with each other less or less frequently. And after the Soviet Union fell... There was sort of this school of thought that developed out of liberalism that said, okay, well, if liberal democracies are going to go to war with each other less and now the U.S. is this global hegemon and we no one can challenge us, then we have a moral obligation to go out and attempt to convert as many countries as possible to liberal democracy as quickly as we can. And we won't be able to do it with everyone but the more countries that institute a system of governance that looks like liberal democracy, the less war there is going to be. And that is called neoconservatism. So if you've ever heard about neoconservatives, they, it kind of developed out of this school of thought liberalism. But of course, if you are ascribing moral imperatives to state action, it is no longer just prescriptive. So neoconservatism actually... Was a school of foreign policy thought. So it was, it said, you should do X.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is neoconservatism got a lot less popular after the Iraq War because we looked at that and went, holy smokes, our ability to institute democracy and influence the world in this way is severely limited. And we've probably learned that lesson again in Syria and again in Libya and pretty much everywhere we've mucked around since then, Afghanistan. That form of neoconservatism, of which uh, Barack Obama is also a kind of adherent, um, if you think Arab Spring, it became a lot less popular. And the United States has sort of gone on this retreat since then where it said, you know what, we're not going to run around trying to be the world police, trying to be the humanitarian, democracy-spreading heroes of the world. We're going to sort of you know, entrench ourselves, and, and that is exemplified by Donald Trump's sort of America first slash fortress America approach some would argue that that means that the you know the neoconservative approach has failed entirely others would say that look it's just not been done well you know we we used our power poorly because we misinterpreted how powerful we were and our ability to influence the world
2: and a lot of times this debate gets framed in in a very black and white way, interventionist versus isolationist. And I think that is entirely the wrong way to look at it because it doesn't allow for any nuance because it basically says either you are for America sending its military out in the world or you're against it. And I don't actually think that what we're seeing right now is a retrenchment of America from the world. I, I don't think that what we're seeing is America becoming increasingly isolationist. I think what's happening right now is America has realized that while it is very powerful, it has a preponderance of power relative to other countries in the world. It is not supremely powerful. It cannot enact whatever change it wants in any corner of the world simply by applying military strength. So with that lesson being learned from Iraq and Syria to a lesser degree, America is kind of saying, all right, so we can't get everything we want. Our resources are limited. There are domestic political constraints that will restrict us from deploying force in certain ways. How then do we define what interests are critical that we must pursue in the world and for which we will be willing to expend resources, economic, military, and people's lives? And which will we be less likely to intervene in? And this comes back to understanding what America's imperatives are. The U.S. will likely be willing to intervene when it feels that it's its core security interests are threatened, and it will be less likely to intervene if they aren't. And the country's kind of going through this process of, of reflection in, in a way to, to, to see that this is the development that's happening and recognizing what those interests really are.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel
2: the warm breeze,
1: Yeah, and also recognizing what its power constraints are. So the United States is not as militarily predominant as it used to be, even though its military is probably stronger than it was, well, certainly stronger than it was in the early 1990s. Um, Of course, other countries are beefing up their military expenditure and strength relative to the United States. One of the things that's going to sort of be a litmus test for whether the realists have it more right or whether the liberals have it more right, is probably going to be the next 30 to 50 years as the relative power of the United States starts to decline a sufficient amount that we become a multipolar world again, which means that there are multiple strong states rather than a hegemonic world, which has existed since the fall of the Soviet Union, where the United States was the predominant state. Because the debate between realists and liberals right now is whether... The relative peace that we've seen on the world stage, especially in Europe, because until the Cold War, Europe was constantly at war since the fall of the Roman Empire. Whether that relative peace, especially in Europe, is due to liberal institutions or whether it's due to the preponderance of power that the United States has sort of keeping a lid on everything and saying, look, nobody's going to war with anyone. We'll come in and defend whoever the underdog is. So just don't even bother. And as that relative power starts to decline, we'll see whether Europe sticks to its institutions or whether Europe starts to become fractured, polarized, and even in potential conflict again.
2: So what are some other schools of thought just before we dig down more into realism? Well, we met, we've mentioned liberalism. We've discussed that. There's a, there, there is a school of thought called constructivism. And what constructivists say is that a society constructs its identity in certain ways, and how it constructs its identity will influence how it acts in the world. Because identity impacts how a society perceives risks, how it perceives the nature of the global order, and therefore how it will act within that global order. So I think that constructivism and realism are both entirely compatible and actually complementary. Because As I mentioned earlier, this issue of identity, understanding how a nation sees itself falls squarely within the realm of constructivism, and that is part and parcel with an analysis of relative power. So once you know what resources two countries have with one another, if you can better understand how they perceive their own identity in relation to the other state, you'll have a better sense of how they will perceive access to their own resources.
1: Where did realism come from? Well, it's probably the oldest foreign policy theory ever. And it was actually exemplified as a foreign policy theory before there was any formal study of foreign policy in a theoretical way. The first realist thinker that we're aware of, uh, who actually wrote stuff down, is this guy called Thucydides. And he wrote this book called The History of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, It's absolutely my favorite book ever, Uh, and some people would say that it's very dry, and I would argue that it's actually a, a brilliantly emotional narrative of a war between Sparta and Athens and their allies. And this war, the Peloponnesian War, was actually the war that crippled the Hellenic states, the Greek states, so much that their age of dominance in the Eastern Mediterranean ended uh, Macedonia was able to come take them over, and then the Age of Alexander the Great happened, and then that collapsed, and then there was some anarchy, and the Romans came by. Uh, so this was actually a very impactful war for the whole world, even though like the number of people involved was tiny compared to what we'd normally expect. It was like, oh, there was this giant battle. 300 people died. You're like, what? Giant? Yeah, it was giant for them. So anyway... Thucydides was a commander in this 30-year-long war between Sparta and Athens. And after he was done, he wrote a history explaining the geopolitical causes of that war. He actually died before he finished it, possibly murdered. So the book just ends abruptly, and, and it's very sad. You're like, oh, God! And so Thucydides made the claim that the war between Athens and Sparta, who had been allies against the Persians for so long, was fundamentally caused by Sparta's fear of the growing strength of the Athenian Empire. Sparta was worried that Athens had become so powerful that it would be able to dominate Sparta, in particular because Athens' navy was so powerful they thought it could isolate Sparta. Thucydides claimed that the proximate causes, the things that that immediately preceded the individual ex- escalations, could have occurred a number of ways, but it ultimately didn't matter because the deeper cause was the shift in relative power relations. And so this is an example of what's commonly called the security spiral in international relations, which we described earlier without saying it's the one where one state expands its power to further its self-interest and it ultimately makes another state insecure and that state increases its power to defend itself and this you know downward spiral occurs one thing that people came up with later is this idea called the Thucydides trap uh, which is essentially the same thing as the security spiral and what's interesting is it's become kind of vogue in places like Politico uh, applying it to the situation, for example, between the United States and China.
2: Yeah, I, I don't actually think that the analogy with the US and China is is accurate. So the idea with this Thucydides trap is that like Sparta and Athens, this rising power is, is coming and is going to challenge entrenched interests. And that's going to lead to this massive war. So places like Political are saying, oh my gosh, China's a rising power. That's going to threaten the established power, the United States, and we're going to see something like the Peloponnesian War of the modern day. But there's aspects of this analogy that, that don't really hold up. For example, in the Peloponnesian War, Athens was the rising power and had become so rich and had developed military capabilities that could cripple Sparta. It had this really powerful navy it could blockade Sparta, and if Athens was able to block off this really narrow point of of Greece called the Corinthian Isthmus, could basically trap Sparta on to this part of Greece called the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is basically where Sparta was, and then blockade them. So Athens had basically acquired the military power to really hurt Sparta bad. And today is just not the case with China. Uh, the U.S. military is far, far, far more powerful than China in a number of different ways. Certainly, in its ability to project power uh, over over oceans, China has a navy, but is not really a blue water navy. They don't have the ability to bring aircraft carriers out and launch a massive attack in the way that the US does and this is both due to institutional knowledge access to actual resources and weapons and also logistic support. So if this analogy were perfect then the US would be uh, would be Sparta and China would be Athens and China would have already developed capability to hurt the US greatly and block us off in some sort of strategic way at a geographical location and that's just
1: not the case. The last part about Thucydides is is that it contains what's called the million dialogue, which uh, it's apocryphal, but it sums up the most core classical idea of realism in a nugget. And uh, within the foreign policy school of realism, we kind of joke about, you know, how realist are you? Are you a million dialogue realist? And the million dialogue goes like this. Athenian delegates are talking to the delegates of this island called Milos, which is in rebellion. And Athens basically says, like, look, if if you continue the rebellion and we defeat you, we're going to kill all of you. You're just all going to die. And because we, we're going to make a point to everyone else that rebellion means death to everyone. And the millions are like, oh, we appeal to the gods. What you're doing is wrong. It's immoral. It's horrible. And the Athenians say, ah, the gods look favorably upon those who have the power to do for themselves what they want. And the quote that is most famous is they say, the strong take what they can, the weak suffer what they must. And again, this is not moral guidance, nor is it prescriptive. But Thucydides believed that this was a cold fact of reality. And no matter how you dressed up what you did, no matter what highfalutin moral terminology you applied to it, that rule in the international world is involatile. Uh, and, and that's influenced realism ever since.
2: Yeah, and so a lot of people will invoke the the idea of, well, will invoke morality when talking about realism and saying, ah, you subscribe to real realpolitik, and that means that you just don't believe that there is any morality, and it's okay to do whatever you want. And I, I don't think that's an accurate characterization of realism again realism is descriptive it's a trying it's trying to understand why things happen and in the process of trying to understand why things happen it kind of recognizes that in interstate actions morality just doesn't apply certainly not the same way as it does in day-to-day circumstances again because in day-to-day circumstances there is a sovereign with a monopoly on violence that can force people to behave certain ways and protect them in in ways that actually allow for better relations with your neighbors and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, this explanation, Xander, sounds like it's relevant to another very famous book about realism.
2: Which one are you talking about,
1: Eric? I'm talking about The Prince by Machiavelli. And so people often hear Machiavelli and they think, ooh, being Machiavellian, that's really bad, ooh. But the thing is, while Machiavelli was making recommendations to the prince. What's interesting is Machiavelli was also Republican and and didn't like the autocracy uh, that he saw in, in his home, but uh, he was trying to advise his prince. And one of the things he was telling the prince about was essentially realism. And he said that there are situations where proper state action would seem immoral by day-to-day standards, but would actually end up being a better outcome for society, possibly even within the rival city-state or the rival country that the state was acting against. He claimed, therefore, that princes should not be judged by the same guidelines that we judge normal people who don't live in anarchy, where the prince does, the prince's behavior is within an anarchic world. Instead, the prince should be judged by how effectively they provide for a prosperous and secure society, recognizing that achieving those goals will require doing things that would cause chaos if everyone within the society practiced it. So what he essentially said is that, you know, look, you act by different rules than normal people and the reason you act by these different rules is because you're commanding a state that lives in anarchy as opposed to trying to create you know trying to get along in society that wants to preserve order and, and liberty for everyone within it
2: yeah and the reason that some of this was prescriptive so he was actually giving policy advice in the prince was in part because well one interpretation is he was kind of like it was a, it was a job application. He was trying to get back into the civil service, basically. But also because the Italian states at that point had really kind of descended into a state of anarchy within themselves or among themselves. And uh, Machiavelli lamented this. He believed that the best form of government was republicanism, but did not believe that republicanism can come about directly from a state of anarchy. First, stability and order needs to be implemented. And the only way to do that from a state of anarchy is with a prince. So one example of sort of these um what would seem like an immoral recommendation from Machiavelli, he says is if a prince comes to power in sort of a state of an ongoing civil war for example, then he may have to use violence and there are some guidelines to how he should use violence. Now, if he needs to quickly put down the rebellion, that violence should be implemented Very, very quickly and all at once in great force, because that will basically quell the rebellion and the opposition, and some degree of stability will come about from fear of the prince. And he says this is actually better than not killing all those people up front and running the risk of the rebellion simmering and building back up, and the opposition gaining momentum, and then being able to challenge the prince's government and then bring the whole state back into civil war where far more people would die. So these are the sort of the calculations that that he's thinking about when he's offering advice to the prince, but it comes from a realist perspective of yeah, well big oppositions tend to come back and hit at the state if they're not eliminated quickly. And that would be the realist analysis. So in my mind this term Machiavellian has come to represent, oh, just forsaking morals and the ends justify the means and you need to do whatever you need to do to accomplish these goals. And I actually don't think that that characterizes Machiavelli's writing at all, especially not in the broader opus of his works, because the prince is just one very small sliver compared to other things that he wrote. Uh, so I, I've come to, to have this, this this expression, which is that Machiavelli was not a Machiavellian I just don't think that's an accurate description for for what's actually in his writings.
1: So the next big player that we've already mentioned in the history of realism was Thomas Hobbes, who introduced the idea of leviathans in da, 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 The Leviathan. And he said that leviathans allow for peace, and without them, either in society or in the international system, life is, and you might know this quote, quote, Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And it's because without a Leviathan, you can get your stuff taken and get clunked overhead by people who are nasty, brutish, and tall.
2: Eric, what's a a Leviathan, though?
1: A Leviathan, so it comes from the mythical Leviathan, who's this giant beast who lives in the ocean and, you know, in a certain part. And the Leviathan is so powerful compared to everyone else that you don't mess with him. He can do whatever he wants. He has a massive preponderance of power. Uh, And Hobbes purposefully used the term Leviathan to invoke this thing that people might think is horrible, but that he would say that the Leviathan, if that power is used wisely, actually makes life much better for everyone. Because what it does is it uses its power to stamp out bad actors uh, and keep them from doing bad, you know, keep those nasty British tall people from clunking over the head and taking all of your stuff And so Hobbes believed that the Leviathan justified the existence of a state with, you know, a police force and a monopoly on power within a single state to be able to act for the good of everyone, because without it, life is nasty, British and short. Yeah,
2: so you can think of Leviathan as just a synonym for sovereign or government that has control over some sort of country. And the, the phrase, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, is meant to describe man in the state of nature, in a state of anarchy, where there is no greater power.
1: So fast-forwarding a bit, 1850, Columbia University in the United States launches the first school of international relations with the explicit aim to end war. The academic world starts to develop foreign policy theory explicitly, and after World War II, scholars start Talking about realism with that word since we first see it come up—and it proliferates greatly within academia. And now papers are being written about it all the time, including mine.
2: Yeah, Eric wrote his uh, master's thesis at MIT on power transition wars. So he analyzed a large data set of different wars that occurred, and then came up with metrics to to measure the amount of power that each state had, and then the rate of change of that power, and said, okay is there some sort of relationship between the imbalance in power between states and the rate of war? And then he went deeper and said, okay, is there some sort of relationship between the rate of change of that imbalance of power and the incidence of war? And the answer is yes. If there are two countries, especially if they're geographically close by, and the 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 imbalance between power is changing very, very quickly, they're more likely to go to war
1: And if you're looking for something riveting because you're bored by, I don't know, Game of Thrones or whatever, and you're looking for some more of the real stuff, uh, I will post a link to the thesis in our show notes. It's actually really worth reading. It's a a great read.
2: Um, So we mentioned earlier that there are different types of realism, and now we want to kind of break apart what those categories are. So the first is called classical realism, and as the name implies, it's referring to this classical period. So we talked about Thucydides. Classical realism is kind of really hearkening back to the original writers, the ancients, and maybe to a lesser degree, Hobbes. Um, And the problem with the term is that it came to include so many different authors that there wasn't really a coherent definition anymore. So the term classical realism isn't really used much anymore today, and it's been replaced with neoclassical realism, which
1: we'll get to in a minute. One of the other popular sub-schools is liberal realism or the English school. Uh, and it says that the world is anarchical, but people are able to find means other than direct courts of power to ensure the security. This includes setting up agreed-to norms and using collective power to hold others accountable. So it says, yep, still anarchy, Still security issues, but sometimes states will figure out that they can work together in order to further their joint security interests. And this is actually more sophisticated and nuanced than merely having alliances, which is something that uh, all schools of realism attempt to account for. You know, nobody pretends they don't exist. Um, But that, you know, states, for example, will develop things like the WTO or international law, which they will defend in order to further their self-interests. One of the big ones is neorealism or structural realism. And so it was an attempt to evolve classical realism, to focus uh, on this greater international system, um, that there's this dynamic system going on with states kind of bumping around, and interacting with each other. Um, and it says, much like Machiavelli's The Prince, that states act very differently from individuals and thus sovereign leaders act differently from how they would act as regular citizens. It specifically talks about many of the constraints that the international system puts on different countries. And so it says, look, you're within the system. All these other states are doing these other things. You, therefore, have tons of constraints on how you can actually apply your power and expand it. So Russia might be running into that right now where it's it's very insecure for a lot of reasons and it wants to expand that security, but because it's bumping up against the security needs of other states that have a lot more power than it does collectively, when it, it that if it were to severely threaten their security imperatives, uh, they would fight back. And so Russia has these constraints where it's like, oh, God, I feel bad, but or, I feel insecure, but there's only so much that I can do about it. Um, that's where you start to see structural realism come to play.
2: So then there are these two called offensive realism and defensive realism. And sort of the, the key difference in assumptions is how severe anarchy is assumed to be in the international system. And offensive realism is It assumes that anarchy is very severe in the international system, and they call it Hobbesian, so referring to Thomas Hobbes and the idea of Leviathan. This makes security scarce in the international world, and it drives nations to develop military and economic power to defend themselves, but that this makes them prone to conflict with other states because other states see the mobilization of their arms and the accumulation of their power not in a defensive way, but as a threat to them. So while that accumulation of power may often start with a defensive motive, it often uh, turns into an offensive campaign waged in the name of of defending themselves. And this happens because anarchy is severe. Defensive realism says that anarchy exists but is not really that extreme security actually exists between states it's fairly abundant and this makes makes states less prone to conflict so states will go to war then when the prevailing methods of waging war favor this offensive approach so if you know you don't really want to go to war but the only way that you can defend yourself if your enemy develops some sort of military capability is striking first Defensive realists will say this is this is the case
1: in which we will see states go to war. And so those depend a lot on technology. And so one of the things they say is, for example, let's say like you developed how to build a stone wall, but nobody's developed how to build a really good catapult to take down the stone wall, then Security is preponderant because you just have to build these walls and people can't really get through. So think, for example, the Great Wall of China. But then, oh, someone develops the catapult and you can just smash through them. And they've also developed these, you know, light troops who can run through the wall really fast and throw some missiles and and take out your soft chewy. you know, people inside, then it becomes more offensive because your walls don't work anymore. So you can think for example, of world war one, everyone thought it was going to be offensive and fast, but then trench warfare took over because the technology at the time favored it. So it became very defensive and that's why it dragged on so long. And you're going to have scholars debating this stuff left and right forever. Uh, this is actually a good opportunity for a disclaimer for those scholars who are listening, going, what that doesn't, uh, that doesn't fully explain it. Uh, I must say it, we can't fully explain it any of these in a few sentences and there's also the no true scotsman problem where a bunch of people say well true offensive realism would say blah 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 uh but there is no true scotsman scholars are debating you know what is the right way to look at each you know the world through each of these lenses all the time they're not a unified front so we're just we're just estimating what what they say here
2: yeah and there's a lot of criticism of offensive and defensive realism that we won't get into But this other school of thought, neoclassical realism, tries to answer some of those critiques. So this is a newer wave. It's very much predicated on classical realism, but it tries to be a little bit more specific and doesn't depend on this varied body of historical work that can be kind of vague and and like a precise predictive model. So neoclassical realism tries to bake in the effects of domestic politics and domestic identity, and, and say that, okay, the, the imbalance of power in the international system is the first thing that you need to look at. Understand the resources and capabilities that states have at their disposal and the constraints they face, because that will take a lot of options off the table. However, the next thing you need to know is how a particular country perceives those constraints. So this is where I think constructivism fits into the neoclassical realist model really well. Because if you're going to try to understand how leaders perceive their own country's capabilities and constraints, you need to kind of understand that the nature of that country's identity, how that society sees itself. So there's sort of this intervening variable, which is a bunch of domestic stuff. And if you bake in the constraints and capabilities that you take from the international system and everything with power, and then you look at identity and how people perceive things domestically, then you can get a better sense of the outcome, which is state action.
1: Yeah. I think it brings up the really interesting point that you can predict how states will behave and you can predict outcomes. And states will always act with the hope that they're going to be successful, but in any conflict, 50% of the time you fail. Now, sometimes you just get conflict thrust on you, and you don't really have a choice. You know, think Poland in World War II. But often, states will launch wars or attempt conflict, uh, and they will just fail miserably. And you might think, what the heck were they thinking? And that, And that's where we talk about miscalculations, where states are within these constraints, but the state you know, either just the leader or the leader, more likely the leader plus all of their advisors and and people like that, grossly miscalculate the capabilities of other states or miscalculate the other states' security imperatives. So they'll do something that provokes a state by mistake. So, for example, in the Korean War, General MacArthur didn't think that moving close to the Yalu River would provoke the Chinese and didn't think that the Chinese were all that powerful. Anyway... Whereas Eisenhower was pretty sure mm, yeah't know this is they don't do that uh, and was actually really ticked when he did it so we MacArthur personally did have a miscalculation about how the Chinese would react and then the United States got its butt kicked um, and didn't win the Korean War just brought it back to antebellum status quo uh, and so those miscalculations are legitimate and important parts of you know world history and and looking to the future that that are important and can't be ignored. So if you end up going back to some of our previous episodes about hey what's going on with this country or between these two countries you'll you'll hear much of this framework implied within how we're talking about it. And hopefully hearing a little bit more about realism helps you understand the way that we're looking at the world because While it isn't a bias of ours in the sense of a cognitive bias, it is the lens through which we look at it. And it informs how we anticipate things are going to happen or explain why we believe things happened the way that they did. There are a few other key takeaways that you can use when you go beyond the podcast and look at events throughout the world. And so you see a country acting a certain way, and you think it's strange or frightening or problematic. And when you're trying to understand why that country is acting the way it is, here's a question you can ask first What are its core security objectives? What are its security imperatives? Things that it must secure in order to feel like it's not going to be obliterated and then ask once you've defined these what are the constraints that they face in achieving those objectives that don't allow them to do whatever they want in order to try to get them
2: so i think this is one way to have a reconsider moment the next time you get into a discussion about foreign policy right take a pause when the next person the next time someone says to you oh Leader X said this thing, and that is going to impact everything in the world. And think, you know, does Leader X is is does is what they're saying lining up with what that state must achieve in order to be secure? Because if it's not, there's a good chance that that rhetoric might not be predictive of how that state might act. So, what what does a state's capabilities, their economic, their military resources, and and the constraints that they will run into attempting to deploy and implement those, what does that mean? What does that mean for the future?
1: I think the other interesting question that we can ask ourselves about the long term is that people are going to give you predictions about whether certain countries are going to go to war and whether peace is going to be something that prevails in the long term, right? Some people are really big into predicting doom and gloom whereas other people are big into predicting that there's going to be a relative peace for the very long term and to break down these different predictions and decide, you know, who's on to something and who seems full of it, we can use theoretical frameworks just like we do anything else. And so, what would the realist versus liberal frameworks mean for the future should we expect relative peace to continue to prevail or to break down and this is something where we would love to get your input and comments either in the comment section of the show notes or on facebook or twitter uh, let us know what you think because this is something that we think about a lot and really enjoy talking about and that wraps up the theory so next time Get ready to join us with Zach Twomley of When Diplomacy Fails. We're really looking forward to this conversation. And what we'll be doing is taking this theory and putting it to the test with a lot of historical examples and saying, okay, this is what happened, Zach. Why do you think it happened? And the three of us are going to talk about, okay, what might be the drivers of conflict and war in some of the most important important conflicts in history that have really shaped the world and we might even get around to talking hey what if it were different could have prevented this conflict from occurring so we're really looking forward to that and hope you are as well
2: so with that remember don't let the pundits do the thinking for you pause and reconsider is signing off and
1: this is eric signing off see you next time with zach